Okay, so hi, Mobet. Uh, <clears throat> okay, onward. Let's uh, let's just go away to the text. All right, ladies, Shmuel Bed, Perak Aleph. Shmuel Bed, Perak Aleph seems to be something that um, could very well have been part of Shmuel Aleph. And the the distinction between Shmuel Aleph and Shmuel Bed is very, uh, it's a very thin line. And uh, of course, it's not a Jewish thing. But we what we're seeing here is sort of um, a another discussion of the death of Shaul, and it's a little bit surprising because it's not exactly what we heard in the previous parak. So, first of all, there's three parts to this uh, to this uh, parak. There's part one, which is where David hears about the death of Shaul and Yonatan. Part two, where he deals with the messenger. And part three, which is David's lament for Shaul and Yonatan, which is a very, very uh, beautiful piece of writing. And um, not, not simple, but we'll, we'll do our best. Okay. So we start off, we have just like finished, you know, in, in, uh, in the previous, in the previous parak, we saw that, um, you know, Shaul, Shul's death is absolutely, you know, a, a dreadful thing. The the Plishtim come and they they abuse his body. They cut off his head and they they bring his things to Plishti um, temples of idol worship. And we only get a slight sense of redemption, a little bit of a saving, you know, when the people of Yabesh Gilad come and uh, retrieve the bodies and bury them. But it, it's a terribly sad story. And that's how Shmuel Aleph ends. And Shmuel Bed is, is a, a, begins with a tremendous contrast. Pasuk Aleph. And it was after the death of Shaul, and David returned from striking Amalek, and David dwelt in Siklag for two days. Now, we have to put ourselves back to the previous story where David, right, he has been rejected by Achish's men um, in, on his way up to participate in the battle on Geboa. And Achish said, I'm really sorry, but I end up, my men don't actually want you. And David said, hump, that's, you know, so shocking. How do you do that to me? But of course, David should not be on the battle at Har Geboa. He should not be part of that. And Akash who orchestrates it, so he's not. But when he gets back to Tikluk, he finds that in his absence, all of the people have been kidnapped and uh, the place raided and destroyed. And so he gives chase and he wins a battle against Amalek. So now what we have to do is show how the Tanakh is giving us a contrast. Shaul is vanquished by the Plishtim, he's defeated. David has 
defeated the Amalekim and he's victorious. So it's it's kind of not, not possible to see the story without looking at that contrast, without understanding the great irony here. And it gets uh, it gets greater when we meet the Amaleki who claims he's responsible for Shaul's death. And David has vanquished Amalekim. And along comes this Amaleki who says he has killed Shaul. <coughs> and, and really, it's all very symbolic because the reason that Shaul lost the kingship was because he didn't finish off Amalek back in chapter 15 in Shalalech. Okay. And at that point, Shmuel says to Shaul, because you didn't do what God wants you to do with Amalek, Hashem is taking the Malucha from you and giving it to your friend who's better for, better than you. And Shmuel, you know, uh, um, confirms that that person is David in chapter 28 when he is, uh, you know, when Shaul speaks to him at Eindor. We're assuming that that actually happened, but, you know, we're not going to go there now. So we have this contrast, and we have to, you know, see how Shaul and David are, are contrasted here. Now, the Malbim says something here, which is very, very beautiful. I want to give you the the full story. I'll show you. Kedushin. I have a lot of this. The Gemara in Kedushin, right, says like this, right? Um, This is a very, very famous chazal, um, which I did want to bring out because it's something that we really have to learn from and, and think about. The In Kohelet, the very beginning of Kohelet, um, Paskei, in Perak Aleph, um, Kohelet says, Shlomo Melech says, the sun rises or the sun sets. Now, that's actually a problem because in Judaism, we start our day at sunset and sunset should come before sunrise. So the Chazal make a drash here and they say, right? Right? A beautiful, beautiful teaching, a beautiful chazal that says, HaKadosh Baruch Hu doesn't take away a tzaddik, a leader, a great person, unless there is waiting in the wings the next one, which is saying to us, HaKadosh Baruch Hu never abandons us, never leaves us alone, never leaves us without leadership. And the sun of one great person is rising before the sun of another great person is setting. And we see that with Shmuel at the beginning of Sefer Shmuel Olive, where it says, right, the lamp of God, this is the, the drash there, the lamp of God did not go out referring to Eli. Eli was still alive. But Shmuel was already in place. 
to take over from aid. We have this principle in so many ways. Um, we have we see that, you know, Judaism had been established in Israel and in the United States before the Holocaust. It was in place not to replace, but to begin again, right? After the, the Hurban, right, there were um, other great people taking over. And so it's, it, it pays to remember something to think about. Hashem never abandons us. So Malbim um, builds on that thought and says, when the son of Shaul was setting, right, the son of David was rising which I think was a very, very beautiful thought. Now, on the third day, the third day is always an auspicious thing in the Torah. The third day, Akeda, um, the third day, Harsinai, the third day, Esther goes to the king. The third day, so we're right away thinking something interesting is going to happen. Someone comes from the camp who had been with Shoal. Classic signs of mourning. His clothes are torn and there is dirt on his head. When he comes to David, he falls on his face and he prostrates himself. And we are we are clearly meant to remember the Mivaser in chapter four. If you recall, there it says Ish Binyamin, Chazal say it was actually Shaul coming back from the disastrous war with the Philistines where the Ark is stolen, coming with his clothes torn and dirt on his head to tell the bad news. Where are you coming from? I have run away from the camp of Israel. Now, the word nimlatati is already uh, a red light. So I ran away from a battlefield means it's not good news. And um, David is waiting to hear. He says, What happened? Tell me, tell me. And David, you see, sense the anxiety. He wants to know what happened. And um, we have to remember that when telling bad news, we have to be circumspect and gentle. Pasuk Dalit. When David says, tell me, tell me quick what happened. He says, people ran away from the war. That's number one bad. Many, many people fell. Many people died. And the most uh, powerful uh, bad news, the king has been killed and his son Yonatan. And so he builds, like the Mivaser in chapter 4, he builds from the you know, the beginning and he builds and he builds. The Malbin points out that if they hadn't run away from the war, they might not have uh, lost so many people. But the fact that they fled indicates that they were in a panic, they were terrified, and they um, were not able to fight properly. Now, Rashi brings a medrash here, which I want to share with you. Pasuk, I'm Pasuk Bet. 
Rashi says, The man that came from the camp, the, there's a medrash that says that this person was Doeka Adomi, if you recall, um, Shul's advisor, who was the the, um, the Bala Shanhara, who caused the uh, Shul to be angry at the Kohanim and to kill who killed all the Kohanim. And Rashi says, I don't like this. <laughs> I don't like this medrash. Lo me you I can't deal with it. Now there's two reasons, clear reasons that the Sif says came and explains that first of all, Doeg is called an Edomi whether he's from Edom or just that's his complexion, it's not so clear, but he's not an Amaleki. And the second thing is David knew who Edoig was, so he doesn't have to ask him, who are you? So it's not like, it's definitely not shot, but there does seem to be some sort of terrible irony being uh, looked at by the Medrash. Okay. So David hears this terrible news and David says, David he made Shaul the Yonatan. How do you know that Shaul and Yonatan were killed? And this is a very uh, fair question because, you know, I mean, if you saw them die, then how did you survive? And if you were far away, how do you know it was them? And if somebody told you, how do you know it was true? So there's many, many ways that you could be wrong. David would like to hear that he's wrong. And this is really a very strange expression. The young man says, the, the Magid, the person who's speaking to him, this happened to be in Hargaboa. Now, in the, the first part, there's a double verb. Now, the double verb, you always conjugate the second half. The first of the double verb is called a makor. It's a, one of the infinitive forms. It's kind of an ing thing in English. You call it a gerund, right? Happening, I happen. Except that this is spelled with an olive, and happening is with a hey. So I find that strange. But the Tzuda says this is all from the mikre. And isn't that a malik, right? Asher karchabaderach in They they happen to you on the way. These are people who believe that the world is a mikre. Everything just happens, right? And it's so ironic that he says, it just happened to be in Haragiboa. What are you doing in Haragiboa? People don't happen on a battlefield. Most people avoid a battlefield if they have any brains in their head. So let's think, why would this Amaliki be on the battlefield? Okay? It seems likely, it seems likely, but if you look at the story with, with the um, Tziklag, right? When did they come to Tziklag? There was no men around. And so they came when they could plunder. He's a scavenger. He is a robber of the dead. He is in it for what he can gain. So after the battle, after the battle, he comes checking out what he can pick off the dead bodies. It doesn't seem like he's there for any good reason, is what I'm saying. And I came upon Shaul, right? He doesn't even call him the king, right? The Chazal say, you can't be, have any great uh, status, the day of death, you're just like everyone else. And behold, I see Shaul, he's leaning on his spear, right? 
and the chariots and the masters of the horses are catching up with him. And this is odd because back in, in Shmuel Aleph in chapter 31, where we read the first account of the death of Shaul, we saw that he was afraid of the archers. We didn't hear anything about the horsemen. So we start seeing that there's something here that's not exactly the same. It's a slightly different version of this thing, right? Um, <coughs> so there's also the question of the Hanit. Hanit is a spear, like that is the you know long stick with a sharp end, as opposed to a cherub, which is a sword. So back in chapter 31 of Shul Aleph, we were only talking about a sword, and all of a sudden we have the Hanit. Now we know that Shaul was always with Hanit because there were a few times when he tried to kill David with it, and he tried to kill Yonatan with it, and he's always got his fiddling with his spear. So is it the spear or the sword? So most of the Farshim figure is the same thing. The Radak actually um, talks about it, and he thinks that he was, and the Barbara talks about it, that he, he fell on his sword and he was leaning on his spear because he couldn't stand anymore, right? But um, anyway, you look at it, Shaul has already attempted to kill himself. And if you recall, his armor bearer refused to help him with this. He says, kill me. And the armor goes, oh, no, I'm not doing that, right? And Shaul turned around and he saw me. He called me and I said, here I am. He's ready to serve, right? Who are you? I am an Amaleki. Right? And that is, if Shaul knows that he's an Amaleki, so then that makes the next section very odd, very odd. And if Shaul was just desperate, Stand over me and finish me off because I have been seized with Shabbats, whatever this is. We'll talk about it. But my soul is still within me. So what does this mean? Assuming, okay, we we have uh, we, we have to assume for the purposes of understanding the story that the Amaleki is telling the truth. So he apparently is coming upon Shaul after he has tried to kill himself and before the Pushtim come. And he's standing there not quite dead. And this is a terrible situation for him. He says, finish me off. Because Achazani Hashanah. So if you look at the, the Pashtas here, it says, Choli Harete, right? Um, uh, it's a Radata um, Mavet, tremors before death. He is, he's in, you know, he's what we call today in, in Hebrew, Goseis. He's dying. He's dying. I'm I'm seized with trembling, and I am going to die. But my nefesh is still in. Kikalo nafshimir. I'm not dead yet. Now we remember in chapter thirty-one that poor Shaul is very afraid that they're going to um, um, what's the word to humiliate him and and torture him and mutilate his body, and that's why he decides to kill himself. 
his armor bearer refuses to help him. So he he falls on his sword. I'll just give you the language there. Right. He took the sword and he fell on it. But he's not dead. So this is terrible. He's dying and he's not dead. And he's in pain. And he says, Look, I'm, I'm trembling. I'm about to die. And you have to help me. There's a very, very interesting medish here, which I want to share with you. Right? It's the Targum. That's the uh, trembling of death. The Medrash says, Mishum Avona Kohanim Shahavad, the Katubahen Ketonet Tashbeis. There is an expression in the Big Day Kahuna that they had a Ketonet, a, a cloak, or a, what do you call it? A, yeah, I'll call it a cloak of tashbates. What's tashbates? Tashbates is like checkered work. And the Medrash says this is an indication that Shaul is doing tshuva for having killed the Kohanim. I, I realize that I'm dying for the sin of what I did to the Kohanim. And Shabbat is a key word, tashbates of the Kohanim. It's a very um, sad medrash, very sad. Um, but I'm still kolo I'm still connected to my my soul is still connected. And the the Rabbanik has an interesting comment. His perhaps he says that his because his his uh, clothing is so tightly woven, he couldn't actually manage to kill himself properly because of the the. The Shavats grabbed the sword and, and didn't allow him to give himself enough of a death blow. And the boy says, And I stood over him and I finished him off. Like the motate with the double tough is usually an indication of the end, right? You finish the person off to stop, right? And he's sort of excusing him to say that. I knew he was not going to live. He he was not able to live, right? And there's uh, a number of reasons. For number one, you know, he already has a death blow. He's dying. And number two, it's like he can't get away from here. He's just, you know, the pushdom are coming. And he continues, but and I took the nazir now, like a nazir. The nazir is the crown, the atarat, that is the hair, right? In this case, the nazir is an expression for his crown. The etzada shows Now, etzada is the armband. He had some sort of royal armband. And I brought them to my master here. He gives them to David. So first of all, it's a very, very beautiful Rav Kara here. Which I, I don't have in the computer to show you, but he says something very interesting. He says, um, he says, Is it the custom? 
of a king to go out to war all dressed up with his royal crown and his special armbands? I mean, you know, he's not going to party. He's going to a war. So he says, the etzada is tefillin filyad on his arm, and the nazir is tefillin filrosh. So you get this picture of Shaul davening at this point, and this is, you know, a, a kind of, you know, sad and poignant picture of how he's dying while he's davening. Very interesting medrash by Rav Kara. In any event, David now hears this. Like he is asking a reasonable question: How do you know they're dead? Right? Did you see them? What did you hear about it? Were you there? And he says, "I was not only there; I was the one who finished him off because he asked me to kill him, and I not only that, but I took his crown and his." you know, kingly fear brought them to you because you are clearly the next in line. And um, he brings to David these symbols of kingship. And David believes him. And David rips his garment. And all the people that are with him rip their garments, a clear sign of mourning. They, they lamented and they cried and they eulogized and they fasted till evening. And if you look at this classic, it's interesting. Al Shaul, that's one. Baal Yehonatan Beno, that's two. Baal Ab Hashem, the nation of Israel, three. And the house of Israel fell by the sword. The Mitzudah says, when it says Am Hashem, we're talking about the great ones of God. And Beit Israel, we're talking about um, the rest of the people. Now, the Gemara, let me just find the right way to come in. A lot of Gemaras open here. Right? <laughs> These are the people that you. Of Teir Kriya for. Number one, Alavi Valimo, parents, Al Rabbo Shalimdo Torah, his, his teacher, his Torah teacher, Al Nasi, the prince, Baal Av Beitim, the head of the Beitim. Now, according to Chazal, uh, Shaul was considered the prince in this discussion, and Av Beitim was Yehonatan. Baal Shmuot Raot, and bad news, Baal Birkat Hashem. Um, blasphemy or at the burning of a Sefer Torah and on the Hurban of the cities of Yehuda and the Besamedish and Shabbat. And uh, you're supposed to mourn over these things. Now, sadly, right, there is a lot of um, reason for them to mourn and they cry. And, you know, one of our lessons that we learn from this is we don't rejoice when our enemy dies. It's very interesting because initially it says you mustn't uh, be happy when your enemy dies, but it does say when evil people die, we should be happy. And um, there's a distinction that has to be made. 
an enemy is not necessarily a bad person. Shaul was a good person. Shaul was a great person, but he was very hard on David, and David had a hard time with him. And David is not happy when he died. David is very sad. And he wants everyone to be clear, this is a sad occasion. This is not a question about rejoicing. That Everyone has to know that. And the uh, Ralbag says, we're learning here, and the Bag at the end of every story gives you like a list of you know, what he considers lessons that we learn. And one of the lessons that he says, like one of the last lessons on this whole story is that you have to learn not to rejoice when your enemy dies. <coughs> and here we're being told that we have to mourn over all these things. Your terrible, terrible news, you mourn. Now, at this point in the story, David has accepted his testimony and he is mourning. And now we're going to go back. In other words, this is, Pasuket Bed is telling us what's going to happen for the rest of the day, the morning, the crying, the fasting. And Pasuket Gimel, we're going back to the discussion of what ha, what this kid said. You can imagine, what does the kid think? He comes with signs of mourning and he presents the symbols of kingship to David. What does he think David's going to say? Oh, gee, thanks. I, I really appreciate this. He doesn't know who he's dealing with. He does not know who he's dealing with. Where are you from? David says to this boy, I am the son of an Amaleki convert. Well, this in itself is a strange thing. Earlier, if you want to go back here, he said, right? <coughs> Um, right? David said, where did you come from? He ran from the camp. And he says, right, that he's an Amaleki. Who are you? Amaleki. Now he says he's the son of an Amaleki convert. <coughs> so is it, which is it? Is this, what, what does that mean? If you're an Amaleki convert, can there be such a thing? And right, David is we we have we have to be skeptical ourselves. Is he telling this story? Is he telling the truth? Right? But but is it possible? Okay, is it possible? That he's lying. And if he's lying, why would he lie? Right? And David is no fool. What does he expect David to do? He expects David to give him a reward. He's telling him something that he thinks will make David happy. And he's giving him these symbols of kingship. And he wants David to say, Well done, good for you. But David doesn't say that. How did you not fear to send your hand to destroy the anointed one of God? What were you thinking? How dare you? Right? If you are, you know, if you are Jewish, if you are an actual convert, how did you dare to do that? 
And if you're not, still, what gives you the right? So this is like, you can imagine that this guy is like, he, this is not what he expected. So David says, Pasuk Betzvah, And David calls over one of his men. He says, come near, kill him. And he kills him and he dies. That was his reward. Pasuk Betzvah. Right, your blood is on your head. Because your own um, mouth has testified that you said, I killed the anointed one of God. Okay, so this is a little bit of a troubling situation. We have to try to make sense out of it. Number one, does David think that he actually did kill Shaul? So... Let's take a look. I have to find more reference. Yeah. Um, here we go. Okay, in chapter four of Shmuel Bet, which, you know, spoiler alert, two men kill um, David, uh, Shaul's son, Ishbosheth. Shaul has one remaining son. Why didn't he go to war? We talked about it last week. Either only three guys go to war, or he went to war and escaped, or he was just not the type. But there is this remaining son. His name is Ishbosheth. And two men kill him and come to David, thinking David's going to be so happy with them for killing Ishbosheth. Ishbosheth is trying to take over for Shaul's kingship and David and him are in sort of a competition. And David says to them, he cannot believe that they did this. The one who told me that Shaul was dead, he thought he's telling me good news. He thought I was going to be happy. And I grabbed him and killed him in Siklag, because he thought he's giving me great news. But you evil people, you killed an innocent person here, Tzadik, an innocent person in his house, on his bed. They came and killed him while he was napping. I, 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 I cannot let you go. So if we look ahead, when David says this, what he's saying is, he told me that Shaul was dead. Happily, like he's telling me good news. He doesn't say, he told me he killed Shaul. So it sounds from chapter four that David is really saying, the reason I'm killing him is because he's happy at the death of Shaul. And he doesn't seem to believe him that he's actually the one who did it. But he says to him, as justification for killing him, you said you killed Mashiach Hashem. You said that you killed him. How dare you? And because you said it, I don't need any other you know, witnesses. You came forward like you're happy to tell me this great news. And you said you killed Mashiach Hashem. How could you do that? So... A lot of discussion about why David kills him. It's literally killing the messenger. 
but you have to understand that first of all, he's an Amaleki, right? And David has not had great experiences with Amaleki. There is also this tremendous symbolism and contrast of Shaul not finishing off Amalek and Amalek finishing him off. There's something going on there if he kills him or if he doesn't kill him. But the Chazal say, and this, um, this I want to make sure I open the right piece. Um, I think it's here. No. Okay, good. Ah, here it is. Okay, in Bobakama. Okay, a person who says to another person, blind my eye or cut off my hand or break my leg, and he does so, he has to pay Nezek. In other words, Shaul says to him, kill me. He's not going to kill him. And we had this discussion in the last parak. We talked about mercy killing and euthanasia and how all of these very fraught topics are, you know, are portrayed in the Tanakh. You're really, when Shaul says to his own, kill me, he says, no, I won't, right? Even though Shaul, you know, we, we discussed, Shaul had his reasons for not wanting to be at the mercy of the Pilishtim. He, want, he wants to be, you know, uh, put himself out of their, um, you know, ability to hurt him. But the, the, the Gemara discusses it here in Bible comments is you can't, you know, if someone says to you, break my leg, you can't break his leg. It's not appropriate. You know, and if you do break his leg, right, you have to pay whatever you would pay for damaging a person in that thing. Now, if he said, you, I will not uh, make you pay for it, so then he might be, uh, it says here, um, he, still, he still has to pay, right? Only if you tell him to do it to yourself. And he does it, he might be, he says, I'm not going to make you pay, just break my leg. Crazy people out there, right? And then he says, but if you tell him to hurt someone else, then there's no, there's no justification with that. So we have like a situation here. He's not allowed to kill Shoal, even though Shoal asks him to. And the no sake Halim wasn't allowed to kill Shoal. And we said Shoal made a decision that, you know, was kind of approved of retroactively. But it's a very sad story. Okay. Now, um, that's the end of the second section of our parak. And we move on to the third section. The third section, starting in Pasuk and Zion, is David's lament for Shoal and Yonatan. And this is one of the most beautiful pieces of biblical literature and poetry. And till today, you know, on Yom Zikaron in Israel, this is a very common uh, passage that's read. And it's very, very um, uh, well-known, unfortunately, used, you know, lately together. And there's a few interesting things here, so let's see what we have time for. Now notice that David's relationship with Shaul and Yonatan is so vastly different 
But in this kina, he puts them together. Shaul was, Rabbi H. Shalom put it this way, his mentor and his tormentor. I, I kind of like that. Shaul is chasing him and trying to kill him. It's it's very, very bad. And Yahonatan is his best friend. In fact, you know, it's it's almost like when you when you read the passages of David, like Yonatan is just goes, whatever he could do for David, it's just unbelievable. And so this selfless, uh, unbelievably devoted friend and the his father, who was so difficult about it, he puts them together in his lament, in his eulogy. Now, this pasuk seems to be not exactly part of the kina. And what does it mean? B'nai Yehuda had to learn the art of the bow and arrow. And this is written, I'll say for Yashar. So there's two things that are very difficult to you. One is the idea of teaching Nehuda the art of the bow and arrow. And the second is Sefer Yashar. What's Sefer Yashar? So <clears throat> according to the Mepharshim here, pretty much um, there's a pretty much uniform understanding here that David, before he begins his eulogy, he reassures his people. You guys are the Bnei Yehuda. We will learn war. We will win. This is not the final word. This is not the final stand. And that's another great lesson for us to learn. Even after a very, very serious and grave military defeat, we don't give up. We strengthen our skills. We work on our tactics. And we push ahead, work on Eremuna. And that is a very beautiful thing. David's first guys, B'nai Yehuda, we're going to have to learn Keshit. Now, um, the skill of bow and arrow, right? The skill of bow and arrow is something that B'nai Binyamin were very, very good at. And you're going to see later in the Kina, he says that Shaul and Yonatan never missed. And this was known. Um, in Sefer Shoftim, I mentioned, I think, a few times, Eyu ben Gera, the Binyamini, left-handed warrior, the 700 B'nai Binyamin in the battle of um, the story of Pilegish Begiva. These were unbelievable left-handed marksmen that could they could hit a hair and not miss. So it sounds like David is saying that we're going to have to learn that skill from the B'nai B'nyamin, but we'll do it. We're going to do it. And what does it mean, Sefer Yashar? So, one second. Absolutely, Gemara's open here. What is Sefer Yashar? My Sefer Yashar. What is Sefer Yashar? Amr Abba, 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 Yochanan, Sefer, Abba, Yitzhak, Yaakov, Shemikurim, Sharim. So we have Bilam in Midbar saying, I want to die like the Yesharim, the straight ones, which is so ironic because he's such an evil person. But Sefer Yashar is connected here by the Chazal to Sefer Brashas. There is a brilliant 
commentary of the Ritziv, Rabbi Tzaldatzvayudaburin, um, Hamikdavar, in his introduction to Bracious, where he discusses what makes Avram Yitzchenyakov Yesharim, and um, it's a brilliant, a brilliant, brilliant thing. He says they were straight; they knew what was what. They didn't make distinctions based on you know what this one wore or what this one thought and my Judaism was the right one and his Judaism was the wrong one. It's a beautiful piece, very worthwhile working through at some point. But what he says is, Avram Yitzhak and Yaakov knew what was right. Unfortunately, the contrast that the Siv draws is with the, the Bayit Sheni. And we know that the Bayit Sheni was destroyed by Sinat Hinam. He said, the great people at those times, they knew Torah, they knew halacha, and yet they sinned with sinat chinam. But the Yesharim were straight all the way. So what David is saying, this is learned in the Torah, that we have to learn keshet. And where is it written in the Torah? We go on in the Gemara. It says, hey, Harimza Yehuda. Hey, Harimza, where do we learn this? Yehuda, yadcha yad very, very beautiful Gemara. Um, Yaakov Avinu gives a bracha, right, to his son Yehuda, and he says, your brothers will um, praise you, and your hand will be at the nape against your enemies. And the Chazal say, what is this nape of the neck like? And they say, <coughs> when you draw a bow, you draw it through your neck. And that's talking about the Keshet. And that's what's written on Sefer Yashar. You're going to have to learn how to fight with the bow and arrow and take over from the Mabin Yamin. So it seems like that's not exactly part of the Kina. The Kina really starts here, Pasuk Yutet. Hatzvi Yisrael Sorry, I always get emotional. This is such a beautiful piece. Tzvi is a, is a deer, and Tzvi Israel is often an expression for the land of Israel. Beautiful, or perhaps the, the, the deer of Israel, fleet-footed, fleet footed, right? That's Tzvi Israel. I, I think many times when we talk about Tzvi Israel in modern times, we're talking about the, the beauty of Israel. Dead on your high places. That's How have the mighty fallen? This is the theme of our lament. How have the mighty fallen? The brave ones. And um, this phrase is repeated three times. And that's a, a key phrase. Now, what you have to understand about biblical poetry is that there's a parallel language. And I'll show you with what, what I'm talking about here. Parallel. Two ideas, similar words. Do not tell them in Gat, known to be one of the Plishti cities. <coughs> the parallel phrase. Don't let them know in the outskirts of Ashkelon, another Plishti city. 
pentasmachna benot plishtim, because the daughters of the plishtim will be happy. Penta alozna benot tarolim, the daughters of the uncircumcised ones will rejoice. You see the two phrases that are parallel, and this is a very common uh, feature of biblical poetry. And this, of course, is a tremendous. Um, I don't even know how to say this. Like, you know, the Plishtim, when they hear that Shoal is dead, they're going to celebrate. And we know our enemies, you know, when, you know, when the Jewish people are um, get a blow, a terror attack, you know, 9-11, they celebrate, they give out candies. They, you know, it's a holiday for them. Is it possible to keep to have, telling them the news, the bad news, the sad news for us, because it'll make them happy. And this is the sickness of our enemies. And this is what, you know, Devorah talks about in Shoftim, in, in the end of the um, Shirat Devorah, when she talks about Sisra's mother, right? They're sitting there and they're like so happy at the thought of the Jews being tortured and raped. So David says, Let the hills of Gilboa not have tal, not have dew, not have rain. They should not have fields that have enough crops to be able to take truma. Why? Because the, the shield of the brave ones was there um, uh, repulsed, re, you know, disgust, be disgusting, rejected. Magain Shaul, the shield of Shaul without the anointed one. So what David is saying is he doesn't want that place, the mountain of Geboa, to produce anything. It, it should be a cursed place because of what happened there. And the Chazal explained that these shields were made of leather and they were oiled before the war so that, you know, enemy uh, weapons would, you know, sort of glide off. And this didn't work for Shaul. So this, you know, this terrible tragedy happened and the mountains of Geboa are cursed. And I am told that there are parts of Hare Geboa which actually are always bare, so that the curse came true on those places. And here is where uh, David mentions their, their tremendous skill at their craft. They never, ever miss. This is a feature of Binyamin war warriors, and David says we're going to learn that too. From the blood of the victims, from the fat of the brave ones, the bow of Yehonatan never went backwards, and the sword of, of Shaul never came back empty. They never missed. These two men, the father and the son, always hit their target. And now he says a very, very famous phrase, Shaul Yehonatan. Um, 
Sholem Yehonatan were beloved and were pleasant in their lives, and they were not separated at their deaths. Minasharim Kalu they were lighter than eagles and braver than lions. This phrase, they were not separated at their death. This is a phrase that we use till today when two close people, Nebuchadnezzar, die at the same time. They were together in life. They were beloved and pleasant together in life. And at their death, they were not separated. Shaul and Yehonatan died together. Um, the Barbanel questions why the boy telling over this story doesn't mention the other sons. And he says, because Yehonatan died together with Shaul, we don't know if the other two brothers were there. That was one of his suggestions. It's also possible that because Yehonatan is the crown prince and the most well-known, that he's the one that was focused on. But you see the, the the connection between the father and the son, always together, beloved, and never separated, even in death. Daughters of Israel, and again, the women are the ones who are the ones who react to what's happening. Cry. Cry for Shaul, mourn for Shaul. He brought you beautiful um, scarlet garments and, and special things, Adanim, right? Beautiful clothing. He puts uh, jewelry of gold on your, on your clothing. He brought back so much riches and wealth and the, the girls of Israel benefited and had beautiful things from this. Mourn for them, just as the Plishti women rejoice over their victory, you have to mourn over the loss of these two people. And again, he repeats, How did they die in this war? Dying on the high places. And the Malbim says, you're not supposed to die if you're on the mountain. The mountain is the is the high ground. That's where you should be more successful. And you were such giborim. How did this happen? David cannot take this in. Like, how could it be? These brave and powerful people on, on a mountain. How could it be? He says this again and again. Now, Hafbab is probably the most controversial pasuk here. I am so pained about you, my brother, Yehonatan. And you see, he's he's now stopped talking about the two of them, and he's focusing on his beloved friend. Naam Talima Od, you were so pleasant to me. Your love was more wonderful for me than the love of women. I'll just finish here, and then I'll go back to that, because that's needs discussion. How have the mighty fallen and the weapons of war were lost? It's as if Shaul and Yonatan were themselves the weapons of war and they are lost. So what do I, I want to spend a few minutes on this. I know we were like, we're out of time, but just um, bear with me two minutes. This Pasuk, of course, is very, very famous Pasuk and very much misunderstood. And of course, people have agendas. And so they say, oh, yes, clearly, if David says that Yonatan's love 
was more wonderful than the love of women, then that must have some sinister um, um, explanation or connotation. And it seems to say, right, <coughs> that um, if, if he's talking about the, the love of women, right, how is that different? So basically what the Mepharshim, you know, do with this in general sense is they say that kind of love has all sorts of strings attached. Your love had no strings attached. It was pure and completely um, unadulterated. Yeah, I wanted to show you. Right. If this could, where is it? Uh, should be here. Yeah. Oh, no, here it is. Here it is. Okay. This is taken from a book by Rabbi Yeshua Bachrach. It's called Mabin Sholadabin. And he compares and contrasts the relationships between David and Shaul and David and Yonatan. Really, he says, this is from um, Shirashim, Ki aza kamavit ahaba, kasha kishol's kina, vishafeha vishfei shal hevetia. Aza kamavit ahaba is the love of Yonatan and David. Kasha kishol kina is the jealousy that Shaul felt for David, right? And here, God gave this test to these men. How are they going to deal with David? And the Rambam says, okay, you have here the Pirkei Avot, right? Ahava doesn't depend on anything, right? It's never a tale. Right, Ahava, love that come is because of something. You love someone because they're beautiful. If they're not beautiful, you may not love them anymore. But love that is no object, it's just pure love, that lasts forever. And it's interesting that the Chazal use also the example of David Yonatan. They don't use the example of any couple, as many, many beloved couples in the Tanakh. Dafka David and Yonatan, because there was something so completely selfless here. And he describes here, or Bachrach, or something I really love. Don't have time to go into it deeply. But he says, Yehonatan was a great hero. And when Goliath came up 40 days or 40 nights, Yehonatan wanted that spirit from God to fight Goliath. He, he, he didn't get it. He couldn't find it. It was lost to the house of Shaul and had been given over to David. Right, and he was trying, he was praying, right, but he wasn't up to it. And when David came, Yahunathan saw that godly um, level that he couldn't get to, and his soul became attached to the soul of David, and he loved him like himself. This is the love of two brave, godly souls that found connection, that found a certain, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, it will come to me. Uh, affinity. Affinity. And 
Jonathan should have been as jealous as Shaul was, but he wasn't because he saw David's greatness and he was able to remove jealousy from his heart. And the Ramban says, right, about right, here's the Ramban. The text is teaching us, the Torah is teaching us not to be jealous. Love your friend like you love yourself. Don't make um, uh, uh, measurements of love. And that's why Yehonatan said this love of his soul, that affinity, because he removed jealousy from his heart and he said, you will be the king. Um, so I think that Rebacha captures a very Torah-oriented understanding of this incredible friendship. You know, and David cries when Yonatan tells him, he saves him and tells him to go. He's put himself at a, in a bad place with his father in chapter 20. And he says, and David cries. David is overcome by the selflessness of Yonatan. It's not, it's an amazing thing. The humility, the selflessness, the love. It's not even, you know, it's like not even the, the love of a man for a woman. It's just complete and utter selfless love. And David is is so so broken and so sad. How have the mighty fallen? Until today, that is our that is our elegy for our fallen soldiers, people. Okay, I'm stopping the share. And you can unmute if anyone has any questions, any thoughts. I just wanted to spend a few minutes trying to clarify that because you know that all of the uh, evil-minded people want to uh, take this story out of context. Right? But you see that David himself takes out of his own heart every single bad feeling or hurt or animosity to Shaul. He only sees the good in Shaul. He only mourns the good in Shaul. Puts him together with his best beloved friend. And that's that's David, right? David sees only the good. It feels like a lot of it was very spiritual. Like people like to um, you know, um, understand it in a very simple and, you know, like like they just want to simplify it. They want to say that it was like a gay love. Um, which is a little ridiculous when you see um, David's love for Bathsheba later on, but let's say we're putting that aside. Um, the whole idea seems like it's ad admiration and um, it's just a level of uh, a spirituality that we just can't even understand because it's so, it's almost like you, um, what's the word? Like you are mevatel yourself because for him to admire David like that, it just feels very um, <laughs> like everything he did was selfless. And this was just another selfless thing that he understood that this was um, uh, David's greatness, you know, and that's what he loved about him. Yeah, it's interesting. It's, it seems like David's, that Yonatan's love for David is instantaneous. As soon as he sees David coming forward and this great gvura, this great godliness that David has that he couldn't acquire. He had it in chapter 14. 
and chapter 17 doesn't have it anymore. <coughs> as soon as he sees that, he gives David everything. He gives him his uniform. He gives him his weapon. He's He can't do enough for David. And David, it takes David a while to realize that Jonathan is completely sincere. Jonathan has no ideas. He has no self-interest. It's just pure love. And I think that when Joel saved, I mean, when Jonathan saves David, that's when David cries. He's like, I cannot believe that you love me this much, that you fight with your father over me, that you save my life from your father. Like David is overcome. That's when David cries. He's just, he can't believe it. And all through, he sees that Jonathan is going to do anything for him. He says, you'll be the king and I'll be the next in line. Like, who could say such a thing? And so David's affection for Jonathan builds up more gradually. And he just he just sees that Jonathan is completely, like you said, completely selfless. Completely selfless. He's just an amazing human being. Amazing human being. And that's why the Ramban, that's why the Chazal say that was... You know, there's just complete connection of souls there. Two people who are very brave and very um, godly. It's so sad. I mean, the kina, like, I don't know if you can hear it in my voice. Like, it makes me so sad. Every year on Yom HaZikaron, Medrash Rachel has like a, a little bit of a Yom HaZikaron program. And we always read that kina, right? So many, you know, so many more halalim, so many more giborim. Yeah. There were so many times, though, that even while Shaul was alive, David showed him um, kavod. Like he didn't, even though he had these opportunities, you know, like the whole time it was never, I think that's what makes um, David Amalek so great. It was never about himself. It was almost like he was forced into this, chosen for it, but he never. And so many times. It just never pushed Shaul down. So, of course, in his death, he's doing the same thing. He's glorifying him, you know? It's just, so I don't know. Said, Let's just finish him off. Abishai says, I'll just go kill him. He's, you know, tormenting you. And I was like, no. So you wonder, is it because there is a certain amount of affection that David has for Shaul, that perhaps he forgives him for all of the trouble he's caused him because he says, look, you know, it's the Ruhrah, it's it's mental illness. We 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 can't do anything about mental illness. And he forgives him and he loves him. And he says to him, you know, my father, he calls him, my father, why are you chasing me? What do you want from me? I don't want to hurt you. He calls him my father. He looks at him as a father figure. He's his father-in-law. And it's like you said, there is no animosity in David for Shaul, even after everything, where everybody else is like, just let's kill him and get over with him. And he's like, no. So you, it's true that there is a certain element of the Mashiach Hashem. Like, David wants the office, uh, the institution of kingship to be you know unassailable nobody can just touch the Mashiach Hashem or do anything that has to be a given you don't do anything to the king it's a Mashiach Hashem but even beyond the respect for the institution he does have respect and, and affection for Shaul himself 
which is really, like you say, it's quite amazing. That's what that's what's similar about David and Yonatan. That's what they connect with in each other. This, you know, it's all about God. It's all about God. It's all about seeing good things in other people. It's all about doing what Hashem wants. You know, it's um, yeah, it's amazing. I actually saw something very interesting. I didn't mention it in the share, but there's a um, uh, it's on the the Gush Torah website. Um, I think it's Rabbi Bazak. I'm not. I don't remember which one. But I think it's Rabbi Bazak, and he says that. Um, what was I going to say that? Shaul, that Shaul and Yonatan never were separated. And at the time when David sends, or Shaul sends Yonatan, I'm sorry, confusing. When Yonatan sends David away and he goes back to the city, that at that point, Yonatan made a mistake and he should have left his father and stayed with David. Because the fact that he never separated from Shaul caused his death because he was together with him when Shaul, when Shaul died, so he also died. On the other hand, you know, a Kaddish who was kind of leaving the field open for David to become king. And would David have been able to like wholeheartedly become king if he had Jonathan at his side? It would have been hard for David to, you know, let show, you know Yonatan abdicate for him. It might have been more difficult. But Kaddish Baruch takes that out of the picture. It's interesting. And maybe Yonatan knew that as well. That you know, if he if he goes with his father, he might end up dying. But that could have been another sacrifice that he. I don't know. It's an interesting story. Yeah. It is very sad. I have to say, it is very sad. It is very sad. And this, you know, this is sort of paving the way to show us what David's made of and to, you know, you know, uh, uh, what can I say? To let, let the, the new order come in, the Shemesh of David ride. Rise, I mean, rise. Thanks, Mom. All right. Thank you.